Tonight's talk is titled, Sila Makes Everybody Happy. <laughs> so I learned a new word yesterday, and I'm betting that nobody in here knows what it means. And the word is thrufter. Does anybody know what thrufter means? <laughs> the only possible person might be a stonemason. Because yesterday my partner, he likes to move rocks around. It just makes him happy for some reason. Um, we call it rockage. <laughs> so anyway, he told me about this word named, uh, this word thrupter, and I loved it so much I figured I had to get it into the Dharma talk somehow. And so um, he was telling me about how the walls are made in this, uh, were made. You, you notice there's a lot of old walls in the uh, woods, and there was a whole art to how these walls were made. There were different kinds. One kind were called tossed, tossed walls, and those are just the single files and kind of just look like the rocks are piled on. But then uh, sturdier walls uh, have two courses. It's like they have two walls side by side. And then they have embedded within them rocks that are called thrufters. And a thrufter is... Um, like a longer slab that goes over the two courses and connects them. And it's what makes the wall uh, strong and uh, sturdy and um, secure. So it makes the whole structure stable, is these thrufters that go between the two courses. Sometimes they're called a tie stone. So what does this have to do with sila? <laughs> Well, I was thinking about um, if the two stone walls side by side are our practice, our formal practice, and our daily life practice, what is the thumpter? What is it that goes across, right? And um, the connector. And I think of sila as that uh, thrupter rock. It's what connects our daily life practice and our practice on retreat. And it's what makes our practice stable and strong and uh, able to last and endure for a long time. So tonight, talking about sila practice, or moral integrity. And in Buddhism, this is a foundational practice. It's a strengthening practice, an energizing practice. And it's one where we develop freedom from unhealthy or unwholesome or unhelpful uh, actions of thought, word, and deed. It's actually a rejuvenating practice. Sometimes when we talk about sila, people can get a little concerned <laughs> because they start thinking about, oh, what have I done, right? But it's actually a rejuvenating practice because as we develop stronger uh, sila, we develop a sense of, first of all, confidence in ourselves and trust and even um, a healthy self-esteem. And that's rejuvenating, that gives us energy. So it's a practice of um, freedom and a practice of stability and a power, you know, you could say a positive sense of empowerment. Now you all know the word thrupter. <laughs> and maybe when you walk in the woods you'll see a rock and you'll go, that's a... That's a thrupter. 
Many of uh, the Westerners who come to practice as converts, that's a lot of us here, not all of us, but a lot of us, um, we're attracted to Buddhism, usually initially, for the part that's called bhavana, or mind development. We usually come because we want to meditate, we want to um, learn about the, the mind, the heart, how to cultivate the mind and heart, how to be freer of um, stressful and, and suffering states of mind. But there's a whole other part of the practice, which is um, focused on how we relate to others and uh, how we share happiness with them. And sometimes in the West we run the risk, uh, because um, individualism is, you could say, the religion of the West, um, we run the risk of the emphasis on the practice um, becoming a too much about what makes us happy, and then it can become just a bit too much about me. And uh, I see these other parts of the path as a reminder that um, our practice is also about what we give and what we share and how we um, treat others, how we treat the world, how we connect and interact with others and um, the world and how we spread happiness and we spread peace. They're inseparable in the end, (laughs) the development within oneself and the the sharing of one's development. And so the two foundational practices I think most of you know are dana and sila, generosity and um, ethical conduct. And we've had a little bit of some talks. uh, Bonnie gave a talk on uh, generosity and Aaron gave, gave a talk last night, I think it was, on gratitude, which is... I think, the sister of um, generosity. But we have these three parts to traditionally, dana, sila, bhavana, and it's like a tripod, and the three of them make a stable practice. So we come back again to that that, uh, word stable and strong. I won't say much about generosity tonight because... um, Bonnie already talked about it, but I can't resist saying a few words. <laughs> we negotiate who gets to do which talk, and uh, I gave generosity <laughs> to Bonnie. <laughs> she's, she's a newer teacher, so <laughs> I tend to like say, okay, the newer teachers can talk about what they want. Besides, I had my three Duca talks, right, like all lined up. <laughs> So I think of um, generosity or giving as the uh, natural expression of an open heart, so of a heart that's not barricaded by greed or hatred or delusion, right? The three roots of suffering. And the practice of generosity at the same time helps to dissolve greed, hatred, and delusion. It softens the heart. So it's an expression of our practice, but the practice also develops it. My absolute favorite quote about generosity is from Pema Chodron. She says, generosity ventilates a claustrophobia of (laughs) self-absorption. Ventilates, that's a nice word. It opens up, right? Brings in fresh air. 
the claustrophobia of self-absorption, of being too concerned about ourselves, right? It ventilates that, it opens it up. It helps us to come out of ourselves. It helps us to see that we're embedded within a web of interconnections. It helps us to understand that we're not independently existing beings, but rather that what we are uh, arises interdependently. And of course it loosens grasping. The act of giving in any way um, loses the forces of craving and grasping. I heard somewhere that somebody said that we have five currencies to spend or five ways that we give. Often when we talk about generosity, sometimes we'll go right to um, sharing resources, which is one thing that we, one currency we have. But we also have our energy, our talent, our love, and our time. So we can share all of those with others. As I was driving today, I heard um, just a little bit the end of a story. I wish I'd heard the whole thing. But there was something about kids who were given this, um, they were given eight pieces of candy, I think, and then they were told they could either keep it all or they could give it away to some other kid. And um, the only part I heard was about this girl who gave away four of her pieces of candy. She kept four, but she gave four away. And then they measured their happiness level somehow afterwards and that she was happier after she gave her candy away. Um, so to me, that just confirms what we, what we know. Or, or sometimes if our conditioning's strong, um, it takes time to know this. But to know that generosity is a, is a joyful practice. It's one that brings happiness to the heart and mind. And um, that that uh, then affects our meditation. It lightens the mind. And as we all know, a mind that's light and happy uh, meditates more easily. So it feeds back into bhavana, feeds back into our practice. But we'll move on to sila tonight. So sila is sometimes translated as morality, which is a little bit, um, not a word, some of us have trouble with that word, or um, virtue. (laughs) I like ethical conduct, because that, uh, for many of us, doesn't have the same overlays as those other words or living with integrity. One teacher calls it cleaning up your act, which works also. In some ways, sitting here, you've been doing some house cleaning, I'm sure, as far as uh, sila goes, right? It's a natural part of practice that we, um, when the mind gets quiet, that we start to reflect on some of the things we've done. Sometimes we remember some of the happier things like times that we are generous and we see that the mind gets light and buoyant. But more often, it seems, we remember the things that we've done that weren't so skillful. It's part of practice. It's actually an important part of practice. It's a good part of practice. It's not easy part, but it's good. I'll talk more about that later. So ethical cultivation in Buddhism is um, a commitment to living our lives in a non-harming manner 
or a manner that spreads um, kindness, spreads metta, and tries to refrain from spreading suffering either within oneself or, or to others. So trying to live in a way that brings peace with us wherever we go. When we get a sense of the extent of dukkha in this world, see, I got dukkha in here again. So when we get a sense of the extent of dukkha in this world, which many of you have probably gotten sitting here, how can anything but kindness make sense, right? We really, um, the practice here really helps us to touch in to our deep wish to spread kindness where we go to not increase the suffering in this world, either for ourselves or for others. So it's kind of a no-brainer when we sit here and develop heart and mind that this wish to develop sila comes naturally out of that. Charlotte Joko Beck says, practice can be stated very simply. It is moving from a life of hurting myself and others to a life of not hurting myself and others. That's what we're trying to learn to do. And when we do it, we give a great gift to this world. The Buddha called it a great gift offering freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression to countless beings. It's considered one of the greatest gifts, sila is. And it's, um, it's a very central part of the practice. In a few nights we'll have a talk on the Eightfold Path, and we see that three steps in the Eightfold Path have to do with sila. So the Eightfold Path is the Buddha's prescription for how to... Um, lead a life pointed towards happiness or peace or freedom. And three out of eight have to do with sila. It's almost half. So that's how important it is. I want to frame our discussion or our conversation about sila as talking about it as a learning ground for what causes, or what are the causes and conditions that lead to suffering or to happiness. So as I said, sometimes self-judgment will come up when we talk about sila. But see if you can reframe that, if it comes up in your practice, when you remember things that you've done, or when it comes up in the talk, see if you can reframe, reframe that as, a, as sila is a practice and it's a learning practice a learning ground, a place where we explore. One teacher said, if practicing the precepts doesn't make you uncomfortable, it's probably a sign that you're not taking them seriously enough. So if it makes you uncomfortable, that's actually a good sign. It means that you care. It means that um, you're taking sila practice seriously. It means that you're doing something right. It means that you're honing your um, interior moral compass. 
So just like um, generosity ventilates this, uh, the claustrophobia of self-absorption, I would say that sila does too, because we're moving from the narrowness of self-concern into the recognition of our um, interconnectedness with others and our um, concern for um, their happiness also. The other day when I was home, um, they were logging right on the line next to my house. So I went out to meet the logger. And um, I mentioned that I was away except for on Wednesdays. (laughs) And he asked me what um, I I do. You know, I said I was away teaching except for Wednesdays. And um, actually asked him if he'd mind logging um, somewhere else in that day because it's a huge lot. And he said, no problem, I'm happy to go somewhere else and I'll come back here on a different day. So I said I was away teaching, and he said, well, what are you teaching? <laughs> I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> I had some preconceptions about loggers, I have to admit. I wasn't really, like, holding on to them that yet. So, so I kind of didn't answer the question, and I, we talked about some other stuff. We had a nice conversation. And then he asked me again, um, so what do you teach? I was like, okay. <laughs> I said, well, I, I, I teach meditation. And he says, oh, I meditate too. <laughs> So I had a moment of cognitive dissonance. (laughs) And then he said, I meditate on how the Lord would like me to live today. And I meditate on how he would like me to treat others like they would want, like I would want to be treated. I meditate on the golden rule. And um, I just said to him, it sounds like we share some values. It was, a, it was a beautiful conversation, and I could see that he lived by that, by how kind he was to me when I went out to talk to him and to actually see if he might log somewhere else that day. So that, that's it, right? The moving, the, the trying to live in a way that we are um, trying to treat others as we would want to be treated. So trying to live in a way that... Uh, asks um, what's right and what's helpful and what's true, which isn't always what we want, right? Pema Chodron said the truth is inconvenient. (laughs) So there's a way, right, that it might even be inconvenient, but that we, um, that that doesn't matter, that we do what's right and helpful. The other day we had a, um, a really, really great news here at IMS. Uh, there's some, uh, m- the land across the street, most of the land in the loop, it's a big area there if you've walked around it. So there's a whole big parcel of land that was for sale and um, because the owners died. And uh, a few days ago we closed on it. We bought it all, um, IMS did. So the fields across the street will be preserved and and there's wetlands down in there that will be preserved. And um, really, really a fortunate thing that we could do this. So we had a little ceremony on the land on Tuesday. The staff and the teachers, we went down and we uh, did uh, some greetings to all the beings there, the past beings, present beings. Um, and we really offered them our intention to act with kindness, our intention to... Um, live with them in beauty. We asked for their blessings in return. 
We even asked for like past ancestors who'd lived there if they'd had some trouble that they could come back and be healed. And then Bonnie played some um, music from the Native American church, Native American church music from the Navajo Nation, and we had some chanting. And the, the, the music, the chant, wasn't exactly these words for sure, but it was more or less these words. With beauty may I walk. With beauty before me may I walk. With beauty behind me may I walk. With beauty above me may I walk. With beauty below me may I walk. With beauty all around me may I walk. So I think that um, with Sila, we make the commitment to walk in beauty. That's our intention. So with Sila practice, we're discovering our innate sense of morality or what, um, what feels like what's right. And one way sometimes we see morality is we're told what we should and shouldn't do. And sometimes that's actually helpful. Sometimes we need clear guidance, especially when it's morally ambiguous to us or in areas where we know that craving or hatred can get out of control. Then sometimes some really good guidelines are helpful, like the precepts can be very helpful for sila practice. But there's also a way with sila practice that we become more deeply attuned to our inner moral compass. And we start to live more and more in alignment with that. We, it's actually that our minds uh, get quiet enough that we can hear our own moral intuition. So sila as a foundation for practice. As I've mentioned and as I'm sure you've noticed that when we act unethically, we act in ways that cause harm, we see that it clouds and um, darkens the mind, that it makes the mind turbulent. I'm sure almost all of you have had that experience where you remember something and then the regret and the worry makes the mind very turbulent. And then it doesn't settle, right? And then our mind might be get full of denials and justifications and um, twists of the of the reasoning. It gets all pretty tricky in there. I remember my first uh, long retreat here. I've had a couple periods of practice where I've gone through these kinds of phases, but one was on my first long retreat here. And I just went through like remembering all these unskillful things I'd done. Most of them weren't huge. But even the little ones were remembered, which was kind of interesting. I remembered that I borrowed a shirt from a friend, and that because I liked it so much, I kept forgetting to return it. <laughs> you know, little things like that. I remembered that the sheets that I brought to the center here, they'd come from my father's house, and I hadn't asked him if I could bring them here. See, so, just, so it was just lists like this, right? And I would just see that these um, memories would make the heart and mind turbulent. That they weren't, 
I mean, I know those sound really lame, and um, <laughs> there was some other stuff too, but. Um, <laughs> but what you see is that even the little things, like they count, right? And what's great about this kind of phase of practice is that it does the remorse and the regret um, uh, encourages us to um, live more in alignment with our values. That's the usefulness of remorse and regret. The unpleasantness of those mind states um, serve as motivation to clean up our act. There's different metaphors for um, keeping sila, but one I, I kind of like is um, from when I practiced uh, in Burma, in the retreat there in January, the Sayadu Lakana was the, um, the Sayadu until he died a little over a year ago. Or maybe it was two years ago, but recently. He said keeping... Uh, so when you're on retreat there, you wear these longis, which are these robes that get tied around your um, waist. Everybody wears them, men and women. And tying them is not so easy for us. Westerners who aren't used to it, it's kind of an art, but we have certain tricks that we use to make sure they won't fall down. Um, (laughs) And Saito Lakana said, keeping sila is like tying a longi securely. If it's too loose, it'll fall down, and that's embarrassing for everyone, (laughs) including yourself. (laughs) So if our sila is loose, it's like um, our longi falls down, and it's embarrassing. (laughs) And then just likewise, as I mentioned before, when we engage in wholesome and skillful actions, the karmic imprint is, is one of um, lightness. And that fills the mind um, with happiness, which makes the mind malleable and easy to um, meditate. It's said that the proximate cause of concentration is happiness. That that's what helps the mind concentrate. The Buddha mentioned that one of the main benefits of, an, of living an ethical life is non-remorse. And he calls it the bliss of blamelessness. I think of this as the happiness of a clear conscience. It's a beautiful kind of happiness. It's underappreciated. <laughs> but the happiness of um, a clear conscience is a great blessing. Because there's lack of agitation, there's lack of worry, there's lack of regret. So if our actions do not harm ourselves or others, we don't feel regret and remorse for what we've done. In this way, living a life of moral um, integrity or ethical integrity protects us from ourselves protects us from mental suffering. It's a way of unburdening ourselves. And sometimes the five precepts are great guidelines for this. It can help us. It's considered the foundation of sila in the Buddhist world. And they're guidelines that point us towards how to live a life of non-harming. Or they're also uh, sometimes thought about as... um, (coughs) 
problem areas, our areas of potential uh, suffering. So places to pay attention. And for me, they, they operate as um, kind of a little red flag when I'm about to do something that isn't so ethical. Because the five precepts cover a lot of ground. You can get a lot uh, in there. So, like, for example, today, I went into the um, staff, uh, the office, the front office, to copy a page from a book. And there on the counter was a, a bag of dark chocolate-covered blueberries. <laughs> and um and you know I saw I saw my mind go oh I would like some of those right and then um I looked there was a little sign on it it said to the office staff you know thank you for your um your service or whatever and so um second precept second precept flag <laughs> when second precept and I was like oh okay no it was very easy it was finished I was thinking about this today, and the Spanish phrase came to me, se acabo, which is, a, it, for some reason, it feels more, it's just like it's done. <laughs> and um, so the, the, um, that's part of the beauty of having these guidelines, right? It's just like, because otherwise, let's say I didn't have the precept guideline, would be like, well... There's nobody in here. Probably nobody would see me. <laughs> or they'd be like, well, um, I'm kind of on staff. I'm kind of included, right? You start, we would start doing things with our minds, right? Or like if I asked the staff, I'm sure they'd give me some, so it's probably okay, right? All these justifications. And can you see how complicated that's getting already? And then I would have to take them quickly because somebody might come in the office, right, and see me. Can you feel the stress building? <laughs> no, really, this is serious. <laughs> and it's easier, it's like, oh, we refrain from taking that which is not given to us. It wasn't given to me. So I think of it as great stress reduction, keeping the precepts. It really um, simplifies things quite a bit. And even though what I just described, you know, can seem like a kind of small thing, our day actually has a lot of these moments, and how we respond to them conditions our mind. So if I take those uh, chocolate-covered blueberries, I'm conditioning the mind to take that which is not given from me. I've made that easier now to do again. And if I refrain, I'm making it easier to do that. So the little, um, you could say that the, um, even these little things, they, they condition the mind and be, then become habits and then become character. And what's great about our practice is we become more sensitive to that. So if, I'd pro- if I hadn't practiced, I probably wouldn't have thought twice about it. I would have just taken some of those, right? But I'm more sensitive because I've practiced. Or how about telling a lie? That gets stressful, right? Because you have to remember who you told the lie to. And then often you have to come up with another lie to cover up. (laughs) Then you have to keep track of a couple stories. It's getting really stressful. (laughs) Easier to tell the truth. So 
So our um, understanding of sila is embedded in our um, understanding of karma, which uh, Annie talked about a lot the other night, so I won't talk about um, too much today. But I'll say a few words. So with karma, we often talk about um, what matters most is our motivation. So why we do certain things, what's our motivation, and that the karmic result comes from the motivation. The Buddha said that when we do actions that, yes, the motivation is really important. But he also said equally important is the results of what we do. And so that we pay the attention to the results of what we do, and then we see, did those results lead in a way that contributed happiness to this world, or did they contribute suffering? So it's a combination of motivation and results, or intention and impact. And since our motives are often, um, our motivations often unclear, right? We're not always sure. Um, the, the meditation practice helps us develop more clarity and wisdom that lets us actually be more honest with ourselves about what our motivations are. And it develops a clarity so that we can see more clearly the results of our actions and again determine whether they are helpful or not. The Buddha reflected, there's a whole sutra where he's talking to his son about um, actions and uh, the guidelines he gave for actions were to reflect both before, during, and afterwards whether a certain action leads to suffering for oneself or others or whether it um, does not lead to suffering or leads to uh, a more beneficial result. And I like that. It's to reflect before, and if we forget, we can reflect during or afterwards. Even afterwards, like maybe happening in the hall here, you're reflecting afterwards, you're remembering things. That's helpful because we learn. That's what the Buddha said. We learn that way. And in fact, in Buddhism, it's considered better to do an unskillful action mindfully than spaced out kind of conventional wisdom as well. If you were spaced out, you really didn't mean to do it or whatever. But in um, Buddhism, it's like, do it mindfully so you can learn. Sila practice calls for us to explore our heart, all the sides and shadows of the heart, and to bring them forward to be understood. There's a quote from uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which I really like related to this. He says, If only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his or her own heart. 
So there's a way that we we undertake the commitment to honesty to um, um, all the um, corners of the heart. And this actually develops a lot of compassion for us. When we start to see our own unskillful tendencies, then we have a lot more compassion for others. We're usually less likely to, um, to judge them and more likely to have um, compassion. I loved the question in the hall the other day um, where the person asked about I was talking about having a different opinion about the life of a caterpillar and the life of a bed bug. (laughs) And it's like the question, as I understood it, was that this person was exploring um, their heart and the heart that makes these distinctions (laughs) between what's worthy of life and what's not worthy of life. It was a great um, question and a great... um, investigation. It was interesting because later that day, um, or not that day, the day that I talked about what we were going to do about the bed bugs, I remembered I was walking in the woods at, at, or later in that morning, and I remembered the last thing I said about it. And uh, the last thing I said was, it's not a big deal. And I'm walking through the woods, and I remember that sentence, and I go, oh my God. It's not a big deal to us. And I was trying to reassure you about that, but it's a big deal to the bed bugs. And um, it was kind of shocking because I realized I had been cavalier about the life of the bugs. So then I thought, how do I want to relate to this truth? And I thought of metta, but that seemed a little hypocritical <laughs> to send metta to these bugs, right? But I felt like I wanted some relationship to what was happening. So finally, I, I wish them a, a, a good rebirth. <laughs> I, you know, I actually do think that for a bed bug, it's a good place to, to die. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought maybe those bed bugs worked really hard to get here. <laughs> I know that seems a little crazy, doesn't it? But, <laughs> but who knows? Who knows what happens, right? Hmm. I guess I'm not putting this one online either. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, they're all online for you guys, just not for the general public. (laughs) Hmm. But we do get more sensitive. We, we, We care, right? We see that we care. I had 31 pages here, so I knew I was going to be jettisoning as I went along. Um, hmm, Okay, so I want to talk about two uh, wholesome mental factors that support uh, sila, that are the proximate cause of sila. And those are um, hiri and otapa. Now, the traditional translations of these words are pretty Intense. <laughs> the traditional translation of hiri is moral shame, and um, otapa is moral dread. But let me explain them, because those translations don't sound so good, but the words are actually 
Um, they're really important and they're really wholesome mental factors. So hearing is that sense of um, our conscience telling us that we did something that was unskillful. And we feel, uh, um, so it's related to remorse and regret, right? We feel the sting within ourselves of um, unskillfulness. And otapa is the understanding that some action we are considering taking will lead to suffering and that it would not be a good idea to take this action. So you can see how these two together would help protect our integrity. They're, as far as I know, they're the only two um, wholesome mental factors that are unpleasant. But I don't know if that's true, but that's the only two that I've found. That they're beneficial, but, but they, are, they do have a little bite to them, right? When we remember and we have, feel regret or when we have that kind of dread like, oh, if I do that, it's not going to be good. But they're wholesome because of that, because they help motivate us. Like, for example, if we find ourselves tempted in the next few days to start talking to some of our fellow yogis, the ones we've been wanting to connect with or um, interacting with others, we can reflect, oh, this is not going to have good consequences because it's not keeping the integrity of the um, container of our retreat. And so then we can go, okay, so I'm going to refrain from that because I understand that it doesn't have good consequences, even if it might momentarily be pleasant for us. We distinguish hiri and otapa from guilt. So guilt, it goes um, quite a bit further than hiri, for example, that that, um, remorse and regret. Guilt starts to create a story about who I am based on what I've done. Um, so guilt gets much more sticky and tangled. Hiri, or moral shame, is pretty, it's, it's a little bit cleaner. It bites, but it's cleaner. Guilt starts to kind of collapse in on oneself. And, um, and that's not so helpful. That's not a wholesome mind state. (laughs) So if there's a ton of me and who I am going on, most likely we've slipped over into guilt, and then that's a mind state that's good to be mindful of and to get out of. If if, if we're going downwards in a downward spiral, get out of that mind state. It's not helpful. Doesn't motivate us, right? That kind of guilt doesn't exactly motivate us in a clean way anyway. So we all break the precepts from time to time. Maybe not in the grossest um, levels, but subtler ones for sure. I think of it as human existential dukkha. As Bonnie said the other night, as long as there are seeds of greed, aversion, and ignorance in us, we will um, sometimes fall short and cause pain and suffering to ourselves and others. I remember I remember the moment in my practice when I remember when I realized that it had such an impact that moment it was like wow 
took a deep breath. That's part of our human inheritance. So along with that, we need the capacity to forgive ourselves. Hugely important, that capacity to forgive ourselves. Lynn Jensen, one of my um, favorite authors, he writes it so beautifully. He says, I'm a partner now in the brotherhood and sisterhood of inevitable error and recovery. Our human lives are 10,000 beautiful mistakes. There's so much compassion in there. Norman Fisher says, it is precisely our moral mistakes much more than our moral victories that deepen our sense of what ethical conduct is. There's a teaching in the um, Tibetan tradition called the Four Powers, and uh, the way they explain it is this is um, four strengths to interfere with negative karma before it ripens. Um, But I like to think of it as um, a way to forgive ourselves when, when we've done something unskillful. I call it the four R's. So there's recognize, regret, remediation, and recommit. So we recognize that what we did was unskillful. We feel regret or remorse for what we did. We remediate. So this might be um, that we clean up the mess we made. (laughs) We make amends in some way. But it also might be that we look at what were the causes and conditions that led to us acting in an unskillful way and deal with the causes and conditions. So for example, let's say that we say harsh and angry words to somebody. So this remediate, we might apologize. And we might look at, oh, those words came out of anger. What can I do to work with anger so that I won't speak those kinds of words again? So maybe we meditate, like we're doing here, and we get to know anger. We get to know it very well. We get to know the first signs of it so that we see the first signs. And when the first signs are coming, we say, you know what, it's not a good idea for me to be talking to you now because I might say something I'm going to regret. So all that could come under remediation, right? Looking at the steps that will help us not to repeat the the um the mistake and then we recommit so we bring forth our commitment to um act uh, ethically or with kindness and to me what i love about these four it's like if you've done these four we've done what we can do and we can uh forgive ourselves we can let it go So I'll take a few minutes to say a few things about some of the um, precepts, and that's how we'll have to end today, I think. I love precept practice. I think it's such a hmm, rich place of exploration. I hope to leave you with that sense. It's great mindfulness practice. Great mindfulness practice. 
In each precept, there's a short version like we've taken in the hall to refrain from doing this or that. But then there's a wider, um, more positive framing um, that that can get... um, can lead into a very wide exploration. So I'll give you one example. The first precept, um, to refrain from taking life or to um, honor and protect life. So one time, um, a few years ago, a number of years ago, I have in my garden a big uh, water can. It's like this, big. And uh, I like to keep water in it because then I can just walk by and water uh, what's there when there's water in it. But one day I came out of the front door and um, it was full and there was a little chipmunk in it. And he was swimming. He was swimming and swimming and swimming. And you could just tell that he was going to swim as long as he could. And it so touched my heart just seeing that life force, right? I did not know how long he'd been in there. But he couldn't get out, right? So I took the uh, can to the um, driveway and I tipped it over. <laughs> it was fun because he, he went, just <laughs> 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 so like, what just happened? You know, <laughs> and he went running off. But um, <laughs> so me, part of my first precept practice is that I don't leave water in that in that. Uh, and that big can, even though it's more convenient for me to leave water in there, I don't leave water in there because there's a risk that some animal will go in and get try to get water and die. There was another time here at IMS when I teach in June. Sometimes the little ants come out and down at the apartment I stay in. So I try to... Um, uh, you know, work around them, give them their space. <laughs> but one morning I was tired and I was a little abrupt. I kind of, I killed a few, not on purpose, purpose, but out of, yes, out of, uh, it wasn't skillful, let's just put it that way. <laughs> and um, and then the next morning I came down and there weren't any ants. And I missed them. <laughs> it was like, oh, where have my friends gone? I felt like, you know, I'd, I'd scared them away. I don't know what happened. But that's, we get to that sense of feeling like um, all these beings, even the inconvenient ones, are our uh, relatives. So the second precept, not taking what's not given... Exploring um, any, the many ways we might do that. I remember um, a couple of year, few years ago, uh, we needed some salt and sand for our driveway, and my understanding was that we could go to the town garage and take it. That 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 was okay to do, um, but we weren't totally sure. So I called up the town clerk and I said, uh, "Can we do this? Can we go take uh, sand for our personal use?" and uh, she said, yeah, you can. And she was thrilled that we had asked. There's something touching about it. <laughs> Mark Twain said, always do what is right. It will gratify half of mankind and astound the other half. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of true. I find that um, there was one time I had this whole thing with the insurance companies about my windshield and um, the insurance clerk was even telling me that it was okay to lie. I told her the truth, and she's like, you can lie and get it covered and whatever. I was like, no, no, I'm just not going to do that. She was shocked. 
she, I could actually hear her telling other people in the office that I wouldn't lie about <laughs> You know, it's like people are so astounded. <laughs> but I felt like I gave that town clerk a, a gift, right? Through my, um, my commitment to integrity. So we can look at all kinds of ways we might just take things that aren't exactly given to us. And what's it like to refrain or to ask? This one too, we can get into great care with material things. One of the ways that I um, work with this precept is I, I can tend to be a person who can kind of move quickly and be a little careless at times with things. And so it, part of it is like, how do I treat things? How do I treat books and tables and chairs and dishes? Like, can I treat them with kindness? It's really an orientation towards the world, an orientation of care. There's a whole area that we can explore with this that I don't have time tonight. Um, with uh, climate change and uh, how we use resources, right? Are we given resources, uh, the resources of this world to use in such a way that causes harm to future generations? That's a, that's a big place of exploration that I feel like comes under this precept. So as you can see, it can be very wide. The third precept of refraining from causing harm with sexual energy. Here we refrain as a way to get to know that um, energy so that we can use it skillfully and not in uncontrollable ways. And when we leave here, the commitment is to not cause harm through our sexual energy. But even here, like let's say you have a VR, do you give your VR space or do you try to sit next to them, you know? Like that's a third precept thing to me. Like the, the thing with the VR, what, you guys, oh, do you know VR? Vipassana, <laughs> Vipassana romance. That's the person you have found attractive. <laughs> um, you know, like giving them lots of space is actually the most respectful way to deal with that precept. And then if we want to be close to them, we explore what's going on within me. Speech. We're going to have a whole talk on speech. Brian will get nervous if I say too much. (laughs) That's the other challenge of of giving talks in this retreat. It's like you hear somebody talking about the subject you're going to talk about, and you're like, oh, stop, stop. (laughs) He's more equanimous than that. He's probably not doing that. (laughs) So I won't say a whole lot. But I will say a story. I had an interesting exploration around this this summer. So I uh, rode my bike into town. I live a few miles out of town. So I rode my bike into town to do my errands. And um, I stopped at uh, the pizza place to have a slice of pizza. And I asked this boy, this nine-year-old boy who was sitting outside. I said, will you watch my bike? And he's like, yeah, sure. So I get my pizza. I come back out and I sit with him and we start having conversation. And... Um, 
we started talking about riding bike. I said, well, what about, do you have a bike? You could ride your bike into town too. And he's like, oh, my bike is broken. So then um, we're sitting there and then his parents come out or his mom and his stepdad come out. I find out that it's his stepdad. Anyway, at some point I said, oh, maybe your stepdad will fix your bike. And they kind of look and they say, his bike's not broken. So I turned to him, his name was Benjamin. I said, Benjamin, we got a problem now. (laughs) I said, I still like you, but I'm not going to trust you because you told me a fib, you know. And he kind of sits there, he's looking at me. Um, And you could tell he was kind of impacted by that. (laughs) I said, it kind of changes our relationship because... talking for a little while before that. <laughs> I said it kind of changes our relationship because now I can't believe you. It was really, it was a nice conversation. <laughs> There's a, um, okay, I'm going to, I don't know how you pronounce his name because I've only seen it written. Nietzsche, whatever that, did I say it right? Close enough anyway, right? He says, I'm not upset that you lied to me. I'm upset that from now on I can't believe you. So that precept, really important, telling the truth as a gift to others, as preservation of our relationships, and also as um, the basis of truthfulness to ourselves. If we make the habit of lying to others, then, then it makes it easier to lie to ourselves. And then the last precept of um, not using intoxicants that cloud the mind. So that's really interesting, you know, looking not only at substances like alcohol or, or drugs, but also like what else do we put in our minds and our hearts? How do we relate to all the stimulation and modern... Um, oh, I shouldn't even say that. I'll get you guys thinking, right? Don't think about that yet. Um, <laughs> But we do, one thing we see on retreat is the reverberations of what we put in our hearts and our minds, right? My first long retreat here, I had, I was 24 and I'd spent the summer, I didn't have anything to do, I was kind of waiting for the retreat to start and I was living with my father. And I watched two soap operas a day, because I didn't have much to do. And um, guess what was going through my mind the first three weeks of the retreat? It was horrible. It was like, I wonder if she's with him, and did he find out about that? And I'm like, I don't want to be thinking this stuff. (laughs) But that's what I had been putting in my mind, and it was a huge lesson for me. It's like what we put in our minds and our hearts has an impact, and it doesn't just disappear. It leaves a karmic imprint. So, we have to move on. (laughs) A Sri Lankan monk said, if one were just to engage the five precepts deeply and wholeheartedly, that is the whole path. The first time I heard this, I was like, huh, I was thinking about it, like, how does that work? And the truth is that to really keep the precepts, we do need to purify Greed, hatred, and delusion, which is the whole path.
a great practice. The last thing I want to say is about how um, there's this line at the end of the precepts chant that says, may this morality of mine bring about knowledge of the path and its fruit. So bring about freedom, liberation of the heart and mind. And here is how this happens. There's a whole um, line of how things unfold. Discipline, so moral discipline, is for the sake of restraint. Restraint is for the sake of freedom from remorse. Freedom from remorse for the sake of joy. Joy for the sake of rapture. Rapture for the sake of tranquility. Tranquility for the sake of pleasure. Pleasure for the sake of concentration. So this is how it unfolds. Concentration for the sake of knowledge and vision of things as they are. Knowledge and vision of things as they are for the sake of disenchantment. Disenchantment for the sake of dispassion. Dispassion for the sake of release. Release for the sake of knowledge and vision of release. Knowledge and vision of release for the sake of total unbinding without clinging. So all the way from moral discipline to total freedom of the heart and mind. May your practice of morality bring about knowledge of the fruit and its path. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.